Welcome back. This week starts the beginning of our four-week series in the book of Jonah. And at the outset, I'd like to go ahead and give credit to the sermons of Tim Keller and Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, who were super influential um, in preparing this lesson. So Jonah is a book of prophecy, but the style of writing is actually satire. Satire is the use of exaggeration, irony, humor, and ridicule to point out the shortcomings or even vices of society. It's a way to criticize and expose flaws in ideas, individuals, and groups of people. And it's designed to bring to light a broader issue or problem in society. So some uh, familiar satires to us are things like The Onion or The Babylon Bee or Saturday Night Live. I'm told the newer ones, not so much. I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in a long time. So think Saturday Night Live from, oh, 20 years ago, right? The skits take commonly stereotyped individuals like politicians or celebrities and put them in ridiculous circumstances to which we laugh and we say, this is so ridiculous. All the while, the mirror is being turned on society, on us, to show how ridiculous we can be. In the book of Jonah, the characters all act completely out of character of what you would expect. Jonah, the man of God, is the most hard-hearted character and the only one who doesn't listen to God, while the pagan sailors and later the pagan Ninevites and their king and their cows are attentive to God, humble and repentant. Nobody behaves according to their stereotype. And everything is huge. The Hebrew word gadol means great or exceedingly. It's used 15 times in this book that only has 48 verses. The city is huge. The storm is huge. The fish is huge. The sailors exceedingly fear. Jonah is greatly happy, then greatly depressed and angry. Everything is huge and over the top. We're going to read the story of Jonah, and we will rightly think, what a crazy story. Man, he's a terrible prophet. Can you believe him? And then the satire does its work. God turns the mirror back on the people of God, on us. Jonah, the runaway prophet, hypocritical, full of pride, judgmentalism, and hatred. A man of God who is spiritually asleep. The mirror turns back on us and exposes the worst tendencies of God's people. So welcome to Jonah. Are you ready to take a look in the mirror? A little warning, we might not like what we see. Let's go ahead and start. We'll start in verse one of Jonah, and we're just going to read through the whole first chapter, almost all of it together, and look for places where some irony, humor, satire are going to show us some things, not only about Jonah, but about ourselves as well. So starting in verse one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah begins, The word of the Lord came, which is the usual way that the books of prophecy begin. However, very quickly we'll see that while the other books of prophecy continue with the words of the prophet, the message that God had given him to convey, Jonah does not. Jonah, instead, is a story about the life of a prophet. It's the only book of its kind. Another unusual thing is that God sends Jonah to go to a foreign nation. God's prophets sometimes gave messages about foreign people, but Jonah is the only prophet called to physically go to a foreign country. And what a country it is. 
Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, who at the time was a world powerhouse and enemy of God's people. Remember, Jonah is prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Assyrians are who will eventually take them into exile and scatter Israel altogether. But for now, the Assyrians were one of the cruelest and most violent empires of the ancient world. The prophet Nahum calls Nineveh city of blood. So in the Veggie Tales version, and I, I thought I remembered this correctly, but I went back and watched it again recently just to make sure. The way that they portrayed the, the evil of the Ninevites was that the people, uh, the cartoon people, cheated on each other in business deals, and they were slapping each other with fishes. So all of the little mean cartoons were slapping people with fishes, and they were just terrible. My kids thought that that was really something. Well, here is the adult version from a commentary about how the Assyrians acted. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles and walk through city streets. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. God tells Jonah to call out against Nineveh. We know that when God told his prophets to level an accusation, they were also calling for repentance and there was a possibility of judgment being averted. But wow, it really feels like Nineveh deserves to the judgment. How could a good God give a nation that evil a chance to experience his mercy? It really is surprising and honestly kind of unsettling to us. But just as surprising as the destination is the man that God chooses to send, Jonah. We see about Jonah one other time in the Old Testament, and that is in 2 Kings 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah ministered during the reign of Israel's evil king Jeroboam II. There we learn that Jonah had prophesied in favor of the king's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. Jonah was intensely patriotic. At that time, Israel was wealthy, but also socially immoral and unfaithful to God. Interestingly, the prophets Amos and Hosea actually criticized the same royal administration and prophesied the reverse of what Jonah has said. So this leaves us a little bit confused on what to think about Jonah. But we do know that the Assyrians would have been the people that Jonah most feared and hated. So Jonah, son of Amittai, is who God sends. His name meant dove, son of faithfulness. And as we'll soon see, Jonah acts anything but innocent and faithful. So back to our scripture. God calls Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. In verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down onto it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Basically, Jonah does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. Instead of going overland east to Nineveh, Jonah goes by sea, west, as far away as humanly possible. Truly, Tarshish represented the port farthest west in the known world at the time. 
he could not have gotten farther away. It was quite an extreme response. Jonah didn't just say, no, I'm not going to do it. He said no in a big way and went in the opposite direction. Kind of made me think of our toddlers when they were little, a little defiant toddler. So before we had kids, Clay and I had this notion of um, how we would parent, you know, in in many different ways. Um, And one of those was when we would see other young families out at at restaurants or wherever we were, and the children didn't want to eat what the parents were asking them to eat, we thought, well, my goodness, our kids, we're not going to have that problem. Surely they're doing something wrong. Our kids are going to eat everything we ask them to eat. And little did we know. When those, ch- those ideas of children became actual children, we realized it was not quite so simple. Clayton didn't have a whole lot of words when he was little bitty. Um, but we learned very quickly that there was no making him eat something he didn't want to eat. That green vegetable that I thought he really needed. He would just gag. His no was very emphatic. And then as the others came along, when they didn't want to eat something, they would spit it out or look at you and just laugh and say, I not do it. The defiance was amazing to us. Well, Jonah acts really like a defiant toddler in an over-the-top way running from Nineveh. God describes Nineveh as a great city, And it was both a military and cultural powerhouse. The prospects of Jonah going there were daunting. Honestly, it would have been like a Jewish rabbi going to Berlin, Germany in 1941 and calling the Nazis to repent. In Jonah's eyes, practically speaking, the prospects of success were basically none and the chances of death were high. Not to mention that they deserved to be destroyed. Why in the world would God send Jonah to a place like Nineveh and consider saving them? So in a way, we can understand why he ran. The mission did seem like a really bad idea. But Jonah doesn't just run from his mission to Nineveh. He also runs from God. In the moment, Jonah assumed that because he could not see any good reasons for this mission, that there must not be any. He doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. But a prophet of God isn't supposed to run from God. He's supposed to obey God. And we look at Jonah and we think, how terrible. He is a horrible prophet. And the mirror is lifted up. And our reflection shows how we run from God. The people of Israel did it back in Jonah's day. And we do it too. Every day in different ways, just like Jonah. We often know what we're supposed to do. We know what God expects of us, and we just don't want to do it. Whether it's forgiving someone who has hurt us, turning away from our materialism. Sometimes we run by doing more church stuff. We busy ourselves when, in fact, we're just avoiding Jesus. We'll do stuff for Jesus so we can avoid just being with Jesus. My friend, are you running today? If you are, It's time to slow down. How are you running? Let's look back at our scripture. We're going to start in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You know, in Hebrew, this actually uh, 
would have been pretty funny. We were reading this in the original language. The way it's written is that it's as if the boat were alive and the storm was so intense that it was actually considering breaking apart. Back to verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Which, if you think about it, is a really strange question to ask someone in the middle of life or death situation. But ironically, and here's where the satire comes in, the fact that Jonah is running from his job as a prophet is the precise reason for the storm. They continue to question him. And where do you come from? Where is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah has gotten on a boat with seasoned sailors who, when the storm comes, this storm, they were terrified. They insightfully were aware that this storm had supernatural causes. This was no normal storm. And they start calling out to their gods for rescue. They live in a polytheistic culture where many gods were worshipped, right? So they just start through the list, throwing up prayers to all the gods that maybe someone would hear them and calm the storm. But that doesn't work. So then they throw their cargo overboard, and now the whole trip is a loss, a lost cause. They've thrown their business off the ship. Survival is our only goal. But their gods don't respond. They don't calm the storm. And throwing off the cargo doesn't help either. The pagan sailors are running around in a frenzy, grasping for survival. And Jonah is asleep. Jonah's sleep here can be representative. He is spiritually asleep. The man called to arise went further and further down, down to Joppa, down below deck. He lied down and he went down into sleep. Disobedience is always a downward journey until God intervenes. I wonder if you've ever had this experience that I have all too often while driving, uh, that you're going to a familiar place. You look up and realize that you've driven for quite a while and have been completely on autopilot. No memory of the past few minutes, right? I'm on Highway 6 and I get to Highway 7 and I realize that I have no recollection of passing Chucky Mullins, Old Taylor Road, Lamar. Just all of a sudden I'm at Highway 7. It's really unsettling. Truly, for most of us, it's terrifying. Driving a car is the most dangerous thing we do all day. And it's if we're completely sleepwalking while we do it. We look at Jonah and we think, how could he fall asleep in the middle of that storm? That is ridiculous. Exactly. And the mirror is lifted up and we see how our spiritual lives can become just this. Routine, dull, uninteresting, unappealing, and we disengage. Disobedience does this as well. Small steps away from God add up to us being completely asleep to him. 
We often, as the people of God, are in a state of spiritual slumber and apathy, sleepwalking through our days on autopilot, not thinking about God at all. Sometimes not even spending time in his word or prayer and completely asleep to what he's doing all around us. So the captain wakes the sleeping Jonah using the same word that God called him with, arise, call to your God, maybe he'll save us. You know, Jonah doesn't say, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. (laughs) He also doesn't call out to God for help. The sailors cast lots, something like dice, which was a common way of trying to decipher the will of the gods at the time. And this is how it's revealed that Jonah is the reason for the storm. They go back to Jonah, questioning who he is, since the lots have said that he's the reason for the storm. To which he tells them honestly that he's a Hebrew, and that he fears the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. To which they respond, what have you done? Because apparently he had already told them he was running from his God. We don't know when. Maybe back at the port. Tim Mackey wondered if it went something like this. Then when he boarded the boat, the sailors greeted him and said, Well, are you on this voyage to Tarshish for business or pleasure? And maybe he said, Oh, neither really. I'm running from my God. And they thought, Whoo, hey, we know all about that. Those gods, they're they are easy to get out of out of whack. Sorry you're running, but you know, welcome aboard. And can you imagine now that he's told them that his his God is who made the seas, they're thinking, well, great. Thank you so much for choosing our ship on which to run away from your God who made the sea. Jonah says, I fear Yahweh. Fearing with a deep reverence and awe. And we look at him and say, no, you don't. Your actions say different. If you feared God, you would be obeying him instead of running from him. It's the height of religious hypocrisy. And we think, can you believe A man of God would be so hypocritical. And we start to feel superior to Jonah. Then the satire is working and the mirror comes up. To us who say, I fear God, I love God. And yet the words we say show deep contradictions with the choices we make every day. Back to the storm in verse 11. Then they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea and there are two possible reasons for why maybe he did this. The first is, Maybe he had some self-awareness. Maybe he thought, oh no, what have I done? I'm so sorry. I'll pay my dues. Throw me in. I deserve it. Or maybe Jonah's running further away. You know, the surest way not to go to Nineveh is to be dead. 
Maybe he further hardens his heart and would rather die than obey God. And y'all, based on his own admission in chapter 4, I'm inclined to think it was maybe the second option. If we look ahead to chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah actually, in his conversation to God, tells us why he didn't want to go to Tarshish. He says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh because he doesn't want God to show them mercy. Jonah wants God to like the people he likes and hate the people he hates. And again, we see great irony. We see Jonah, the man of God, so self-centered and preoccupied with his hatred for the Ninevites that he has put the sailors at great risk and doesn't even seem concerned about them. And the pagan sailors, who when Jonah tells them to throw him overboard, try desperately to row back to shore, even though he is the reason for their disaster. The pagans are drastically more caring outward-looking and selfless than Jonah. And the mirror is lifted up. How often is it that those outside of the church who by common grace actually act in practical compassion towards outsiders and the downtrodden to those who need to be cared for, while the church looks like a country club, fully turned inward and only concerned with itself? Jonah goes overboard and the storm goes calm. Something has changed in the sailors. Jonah has not called out to God, but they have. They acknowledge that Jonah's God is the one who has caused the storm, and they also ask him to forgive them for throwing Jonah overboard. And in the end, ironically, by being on a boat with a man who said he feared God but did not, the sailors actually come to fear God. Verse 16 tells us that they feared the Lord exceedingly. They acknowledge his sovereignty. You have done as it pleased you, they say. And then they make sacrifices and vows to him. You know, usually making sacrifices involved an altar and a fire. So we could assume maybe that they didn't do this right then and there on their wooden boat, which would mean that once they got home, the sailors found a place where they could offer sacrifices to Jonah's God. So despite Jonah's failure... God brings people into his family. This terrifying storm proves to be the merciful means by which the sailors become followers of the one true God. But the storm is a mercy to Jonah too. God will not allow his prophet to run in disobedience and be lost. He sends a violent storm to overpower his servant and stop him in his tracks. This is not the act of an angry God, but of a fiercely loving father determined to reach and rescue his child from destruction. God looks at Jonah, his servant, who adamantly does not want to show mercy to the people of Nineveh and shows him mercy. Today, we're going to leave Jonah drifting down into the ocean to what he would have expected to be certain death. But God has other plans. You know, it's funny in the VeggieTales version, Jonah is sitting in the ocean in a little yellow ducky life raft but not in the real story. In the real story, he's continuing downward, downward, downward in disobedience. So as we wrap up, 
I want us to note the usefulness of a mirror. You know, mirrors are really helpful. We can look in the mirror and we do this to see if we've got blueberries in our teeth or if our hair is out of whack or if our mascara is looking like raccoon eyes, right? It shows us things that we need and want to fix about ourselves. Jonah shows up, holds up a loving mirror that really shows some of our worst tendencies as Christians. My first thought is when I look in the mirror and see things that are so disheartening about myself, my first thought is get it together. Get it together. Change. Let's do it right now. But we know that it's more complicated than that. The encouragement, though, is that while God, he wouldn't call us to see our sin, repent, and change as if it wasn't possible. It really does feel impossible sometimes. But that's the job of all of the prophets. He sent his prophets to call us to repent and to change. And so we have to believe that it's possible to change. We know that it's impossible on our own. We are completely dependent on him for the power to change. But we also know that our God loves to show mercy, that he loves his children, and he loves it when we turn back to him and want to be changed. So friends, let today be an invitation to hold up the mirror and look. It's the first step. Lord God, we thank you that you love us, that you love your servant Jonah, who was such a mess, and that you love us, who are such a mess. You are so good and so gracious and merciful and just and kind, and we're really thankful to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.